Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, with the World Cup in Qatar already being the scene of some stunning upsets, we look into why we are hardwired to love an underdog. Vehicles are in short supply in this country these days because of ongoing supply chain issues, and it turns out some dealerships are accused of taking advantage to squeeze customers for more cash. We find out how and what you can do about it. Financier, anti-corruption champion, and best-selling author Bill Browder joins us to explain why Canada could be doing more to help Ukraine by doing more to hold Russia to account through enforcing sanctions. But first, higher interest rates and stubbornly high housing prices are combining to put Canada's housing market in something of a deep freeze heading into this winter. We find out why first-time home buyers are struggling to reach that first rung on the property ladder and why sellers are holding out hoping for a market rebirth in the spring. First up, though, the weather. Not the only thing that's getting cooler and cooler this fall. Canada's housing market is also in something of a deep freeze these days, thanks to those rising interest rates and sellers hoping that spring will bring new life to home sales in this country. As it tries to tame inflation, you'll know this, we've talked about it a lot, the Bank of Canada has driven up interest rates no fewer than six times this year alone, from a paltry 0.25% back in March to 3.75% now, with a further hike expected early next month. Now, historically, that isn't all that high. But if you combine high real estate prices that were already lingering with the higher cost of borrowing, it's caused trouble, especially for first-time buyers who simply can't afford to reach that first rung on the property ladder. So home sales have dropped since interest rates started rising, to pull, as far as I could tell, to somewhat below pre-pandemic levels. Not quite, fairly even, but certainly nowhere where they were for a while there. Prices are also down, but they're still pretty They're well above where they were back in 2019. And that's not all. It's not just about sales. People who've bought homes when prices were really high and used variable rate mortgages because those rates were low, or at least were kept low, now find themselves paying a lot more for what they borrowed. Now, the Bank of Canada's Senior Deputy Governor, Carolyn Rogers, uh, spoke to this yesterday in Ottawa. She says the share of households with a variable rate mortgage has really increased over the last year. Homeowners with fixed rate mortgages may also be looking at higher payments when they come to renew, depending on when they took out their mortgage and whether they have room to extend their amortization period. So the bottom line is that mortgage costs for some Canadians have already increased and they will likely increase for most others in time. Yeah, that's that's banker for it's going to be painful for all of you with a mortgage unless you, you, know, you have lots of money squirreled away for it. So what exactly is happening on the ground? That's what I wanted to find out because it's fine to talk to economists about what's going on broadly. But where you really learn what's happening is if you head right down to the front lines. Now, just a year ago, Barrie, a big community north of Toronto, was one of the hottest housing markets in the country with people during the height of the pandemic leaving the greater Toronto area in droves looking for more space and slightly, and I mean slightly at one point, lower prices because prices really went up in Barrie. Well, prices there haven't fallen much, at least not yet, but the whole market seems to have come to something of a standstill. And joining me with more on this, uh, in her car, as one would expect, near Barry, somewhere around Barry, is a real estate agent and uh, REMAX Hallmark Peggy Hill Group realtor, Peggy Hill. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Ben. So this is always the question. I know if we'd spoken to you uh, two or three years ago, you probably wouldn't even have time to speak to us because it was so busy. But what are you seeing on the ground these days? What has been the impact of these rising interest rates and uh, and this market that's been in flux for several months now? Well, I'll tell you, um, Barry was in a real crunch a couple of years ago. We had really no listings for the last couple of years, and we had no rentals. And our rental prices were actually, at times, we hit the first and second highest rent in the country. Wow. Very, very, can you imagine that? And that was because of the pandemic and people were kind of running from the city and a lot of people were renting in Barry, where, you know, maybe they couldn't find the house they wanted or they wanted to try it. And now what you see is the exact reverse. Our rents are actually, we're finding pressure on our rents because there's so many rentals available right now. There's a lot of sellers that don't necessarily want to sell because a lot of them are playing the waiting game and like, like who's to blame them? It's not like anybody's going to tell you that the prices aren't going back up. 
So there are a lot of them are taking their homes off the market and renting them out. That's remarkable. So, so in other words, you have no supply, but also what about demand? What about demand? Demand is there. It's not like it was like, obviously it's funny because when you, when you go out to like Victoria or the Fraser Valley or anywhere, it's the townhouses that are moving. And that's how Barry used to be. You couldn't get a townhouse in Barry, but we lost our first time buyers because a lot of first time buyers were moving just outside of Toronto to get something reasonable. And now with the rates being what they are and the price is not coming down enough, they're no longer affordable. Your typical mortgage, if you're buying a townhouse for, I don't know, six fifty, seven hundred thousand, with ten percent down, you're looking at four thousand dollars a month to carry that townhouse. So it's not unusual that we would be sitting we're kind of at a stalemate right now we still have buyers we still have people moving around because you know real estate happens for life changes for whatever reason so we still have demand we just have zero supply like we have nothing that's remarkable i mean considering um when you look at you talked about those first-time home buyers that that has a real impact on the market right because if they're not buying they're also not moving out of their rentals so that creates all kinds of it creates a domino effect. Exactly. If the first time buyers aren't buying, the middle aren't moving, the higher up aren't, nobody's moving. Like they, they are critical to this economy and we have to figure out how to get them back into this market. And really the rates aren't going down. So the prices have to. What about those who are in homes that we've been reading about this anecdotally, at least those who are in homes, they can no longer afford. Have you been approached by people who say, listen, I just can't, Carry that. I won't be able to carry this mortgage at these increased rates. Now I need to sell. So when you when you look back to the eighties, and I know a lot of people think that our rates are still very low, and I totally agree, our rates are very low. However, they've gone up astronomically in comparison to what they were a couple of months ago. And back in the eighties, we didn't have the prices of houses we have right now. So our problem is that the houses are priced so high that once you know you get a variable. And you have these rates and now your mortgage payments double. And a lot of them are hitting that trigger rate that you've mm-hmm. heard about. Like you're paying more, you're just paying interest and you, the bank can't have that. So people's payments are going up. So you you feel that. However, the job market is so strong and Canadians are so relentless when it comes to paying their mortgage. I haven't seen a lot of that yet. Now, whether people are just hanging on till after Christmas, that's that's yet to be seen. But you, we haven't seen a lot of people saying, I got to get at it. I got to get out of this mortgage. I can't do it. People are finding ways to do it. And that's because there's jobs. If there were no jobs and we had a job crisis, then we'd have a, a bigger problem. But while people are still working, they're still managing to pay their mortgages. But not selling their homes, right? So as you mentioned, it's just sort of, you've called it a stalemate. It is a stalemate because anybody anybody that bought in during the pandemic and bought with a fixed rate, they'd be crazy to sell their home. They'll never get that rate back. So they're they're done. They're they're sitting where they are. And then you have the people with the variable. They're the ones that are the most at risk. Anybody that bought during the pandemic, bought with a variable, with very little down. Now they've seen a 30% drop in their price. They have basically a lot less than that in you know, skin in the game. So what are they going to do? I think they're going to walk to the bank and hand their keys in because that's what I would do. And then what happens if that starts to happen? Because then you have people paying just as much on their mortgage, but but their house is worth less than they paid for it, right? Exactly. So that's that's what we're kind of holding our breaths right now to see how it all plays out. And a lot of it is timing just because of the holidays. And a lot of people make these decisions come January. But if we see an influx of listings come January, then the prices are going to really hurt. They're going to come down even further. Peggy, what do you see happening in, in the not too distant future then? I mean, clearly people are going to start to, you talked about the trigger rates earlier. It feels like people are holding on, waiting to see if the storm blows over, but it's hard to see it blowing over quickly. It, it, it isn't, it isn't, because the one, the number one key factor in this is the fact that we don't have the supply necessary to house all the people. And if the federal government keeps on their mandate of bringing that much immigration, these people need somewhere to live. Like, where are people supposed to live? And now you've seen, because of the rates going up, you've seen all the developers put their hands back in their pockets and say, I'm going to wait this out. Like, supplies are are so expensive. The money is so expensive. So they've kind of let their foot off the gas 
and just kind of wait and see. But the only thing I look at and, and the one thing that's the most important, and I don't care about mortgage rates, I don't care about anything else. All I care about is supply and demand. If you see the amount of supply rising significantly, you have to know that we're in trouble. That's going to be our factor. Because right now, our supply, it, like take a town like Barrie. We have less than two months supply. So all day long, it's a seller's market. It doesn't feel like it because there's not the abundance of buyers like there was. However, it's very much the seller's market. Now, if we start to see that creep up to the four, five, and six months, our prices are going to soften and soften by a lot. So that's what I always tell people to gauge. It's all about the supply. And supply has been tight for, for ages. What would be some of the indicators uh, about, would it be, do you foresee a bunch of sellers coming onto the market all at once? What could possibly drive that considering they've held on till now? And, and presumably they could hold on for a while longer. It just means making some life decisions. Right. Everybody's waiting till the spring. I can promise you every client we talk to right now says we're going to wait till the spring when the unicorns come. I have no idea what's coming in the spring, but a lot of people think it's all going to be better in the spring. So if come January or like February, March, you, do, you don't see much in, in change. Like if you see people start listing, finally, they're going to give up. Like people are not, they can't stay on the fence forever, especially if they're having financial difficulties. So they're not going to stay on the fence forever. As long as people are employed, they can still make their payments, right? Regardless of if how big or small they are, if people are employed, they can make their payments. It's it's when we start seeing significant job losses. And I mean, that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to get our jobless rate up. So in other words, if we if we do start to hit a recession, because employment's been so high that we haven't really seen some of the impacts we would usually see at this point in time, it must be a bit uh, nerve wracking in your shoes these days. The hardest part of my job is that people want me to give them some kind of direction as to what to do. What do I do? What do I do? And you don't, you know, I can tell you what I think you should do. Like if, if I thought you needed to sell, I would tell you to put your house in the market right now because we have no supply, you know, but I can't guarantee that it's not going to be higher in the spring because everything's pointing to the fact that it's going to be lower in the spring, but I can't guarantee that. And that's tough. That is really tough not to be able to give somebody advice that is 100% bang on because I really, that's what I get paid to do. Yeah. And with so little so little supply on the market too, once you decide to sell, where do you go? Well, I mean, at this point, if you're going to sell, you're going to rent. Right. Really? Yeah. I mean, why jump into the same market? Personally, if I were going to sell, if, if I was having financial issues, I would stay on the sidelines and figure and see what happens. I mean, homeownership is a beautiful thing, but it can't be the end all to be all. It can't be, you know, it can't destroy your family. It can't destroy your life savings. You must, I mean, you 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 have a front seat to these incredibly important life decisions, buying a house, especially these days when it's such a big investment. You must have seen everything the past three or four years. It's a huge investment. And, you know, when it was hot and, and everybody was wanting to to bid on these houses and they, they had to have it. And, you know, it, it's this frenzy and it, it sucked. It was awful. Real estate agents don't like those markets. Contrary to popular belief, we're paid to work in those markets, but we don't like them. We like these, you know, this is a good market. This is a market where you can go in with conditions. This is, this is a good market. And I think come April, the government's changing things in Ontario where it's going to be, you know, the sellers will have the option to basically have open bids on their home where sellers and buyers both see the price. Right. Which is another confusing part altogether. It is. That does sound I, crazy. It's yeah. so silly. It's like two years too late and it, it's just silly. Like never mind that would be in an open bid process. Why would they? I know this is a tough question for someone in your shoes, but I mean, it feels like so much of our economy has been driven on this idea of real estate of late. Do you think we're going to have to get used to something a little different? I don't. I think real estate is a solid investment in this country. And again, it's all about immigration and it's all about the lack of supply. Sooner or later, the rates are going to start coming down. Most of, most economists that you talk to now are forecasting 2024 as a year where they can see us starting to cut back as far as interest rates go. So when that happens, all hell is going to break loose again because we don't have the supply. And And the thing is, sellers know that. So they're going to hang on as, as long as they can. And I don't blame them. Well, uh, Peggy, thank you so much for your view from right on the front lines. It's been fascinating. Thanks. Thank you.
You know, anytime there's a big sporting event going on, particularly if you don't have a horse in the race, so to speak, um, but we do this time, of course, Canada is at the World Cup in Qatar. You tend to cheer for the underdog, right? Like if you turn on a game and you think, oh, this team's heavily favored and this one isn't, unless you have some emotional attachment to the favorite, you tend to cheer for the underdog. At least I do. Not always. They've even done research where they've shown people two teams they know nothing about and told them that, you know, this team is the underdog and this team is the favorite. And automatically people will cheer for the underdog. We use different uh, ways of describing underdogs. Scrappy, you know? Um, it's interesting. It's We're wired that way. So yesterday there was this stunning upset at the World Cup. Saudi Arabia beat Argentina 2-1. to one. Uh, Argentina are one of the favorites going in. They've been on this very long winning streak, one of the longest international winning streaks in history. They're about to tie Italy's uh, all-time streak around 35, 36 games unbeaten. And they lost to a team that was ranked 51st in the world. And it was just a massive upset. Then today, Japan, who've always been a decent team, um, beat Germany 2-1. to one. Another major upset. You could be forgiven for thinking maybe Canada, maybe Canada could make it a trifecta by beating Belgium, who are ranked number two in the world. We didn't. We played well. We played really well. In fact, we outplayed Belgium, but lost. one nothing, one nil. A really good study. Still, I, I was reading some of the international coverage of Canada's play today, and a lot of people were really impressed with Canada. A lot of people were cheering for the underdog, and the underdog played with wings, so to speak. They played like they had nothing to lose. They came out, they played aggressively, they attacked. In other words, they didn't sit back and try to not to lose. They went out and tried to win, and that's when it's most fun to watch an underdog, when an underdog looks primed to upset. Um, there have been many other big upsets over the years. I think of Team USA beating the Soviets back in 1980 in Lake Placid. I watched that. I remember watching that, thinking, wow. Um, North Korea, this is a famous one. North Korea beat Italy in the World Cup in England in 1966, 16 years before that, in what is still considered to be the greatest upset in World Cup history. The U.S. beat England at the World Cup in 1950. Buster Douglas beat Mike Tyson. I mean, there are some huge upsets. Uh, and then there's inevitably every year the NCAA tournament, the 64, where every year you someone cheers for 16 to beat one, right? They start off with four groups of four groups of 16, and 16 plays the top seed. The bottom seed plays the top seed. And there's always an upset, and people love those. In fact, there's some colleges that are renowned for being, you know, the Cinderella story, or at least having pulled off these upsets more than once. So what gives the challenger that belief? What allows the favorite to lose, or at least the challenger to triumph, especially with so many people watching. At the World Cup, you have your whole nation watching you. Can you imagine the mood in Argentina yesterday when they lost 2-1 to Saudi Arabia after leading, by the way? So we thought we'd find out more about the psychology of the underdog. And who better than Sam Summers? He's a professor of psychology at Tufts University near Boston. He's co-author of a book called This Is Your Brain on Sports, The Science of Underdogs, the value of rivalry and what we can learn from the t-shirt cannon. It's a, it's a fascinating title. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks for having me, Ben. You know, it's, it came up again yesterday after Saudi Arabia beat Argentina, one of the pre-tournament favorites at the World Cup. But I thought back to, you know, uh, the Team USA in Lake Placid in 1980, Buster Douglas, the NCAA tournament, you know, the long line of underdogs that excite. And it got me thinking about the psychology of why is it, I mean, I don't really care if Argentina wins or loses, but suddenly you thought, how exciting is that? And everyone was talking about it. What is it about the underdog that we are so attracted to? Yeah, it's a, it's a big question. It's a great question. It's one of the first issues we tackled in the book because it's such an interesting idea. And I think you just hit on part of it. It gives you something to watch for and, and root for, right? I mean, if you don't have a rooting interest in Saudi Arabia, Argentina, boy, it sure is more exciting to watch that game with the possibility of something historic happening than it is. I mean, we love goals, but, the, you know, 4 nothing win for Argentina is not quite the same. And um, my guess is that people in Buenos Aires didn't feel that way watching no. it. Right? I mean, they have a vested interest. <laughs> and and uh, same thing today with, with, with Germany and Japan. But if you watch that as a some, somewhat uninvolved outsider, yeah, rooting for the underdog is exciting. It's unexpected. There's more of an emotional payoff, and it gives you a little something to cheer for. And you've 
expanded this far beyond the field or, or, or sports to to all kinds of different places where the idea of seeing oneself as an underdog can be a huge motivating factor. I think that's part of it, right? I think there's an appeal to us internally to, to see ourselves as a bit of underdogs in life. And that's even those of us who are somewhat privileged and high status. Uh, you know, you hear about, I mean, what politician doesn't at some level lay claim to an underdog story, a rags to riches, you know, I you know, pulled myself up in, in, in these different ways, even some of them who are the children of previous politicians. So hardly right. uh, rags to riches stories or the, the corporate idea of, you know, this is a company that was created by a couple of, couple of dudes in a garage somewhere. There's so many different big companies that have that kind of an origin story. Uh, we like that. That appeals to us. And, and it does give us this sense that anything is possible for ourselves and for other people. So I think when we watch a World Cup event or a, a World Cup match or a NCAA basketball tournament game and we root for the underdog, there's part of us that's also pulling for underdogs outside of the world of sports as well. What kind of strength does an underdog have simply by being the underdog. I mean, that it, it seems that that teams that we've watched. I mean, this is a bit of a strange World Cup. They're playing at a different time of year. They're playing late at night, including Canada against Belgium today. It started at 10 p.m. local time. Um, so there are some factors here, but certainly we. It feels like being the underdog gives you wings. Maybe not big enough wings to win, but gives you wings. Yeah, I think when we watch, we know from research that, and there's these really clever studies that researchers have done where they they show, for example, like American college students video recorded uh, Russian league basketball games so that the, the students don't know anything about these teams. And if you tell them the red team is the underdog or you tell some other people the blue team is the underdog, they'll watch the same game and see it differently. They'll see the underdog, whichever they've been told it is, as scrappier, as hustling, as having all these positive characteristics um, we we do sort of see the underdog in a different light as we're watching. And, and I have to believe that plays a role for performers, for players as well, especially when you get off to a good start, right? When the underdog keeps things close, uh, I, I think it does. I, I think it does give wings, as you just said, uh, from the, the performer standpoint, but also for us as spectators. One thing I found interesting, because you looked into this as well, is that if all of a sudden the underdog starts to win, specifically in a you know in a series kind of thing, people change their minds. They start cheering for the for the, the previous favorite once again. It's kind of fickle that way. Yeah, it is interesting, right? I mean, it is true that the underdog has sort of a, a universal appeal, but only so far. Uh, and part of what we're doing with underdogs, I think, is rooting for the unexpected and the change. And if the underdog takes a two, three, nothing series lead, sometimes now we're just rooting for a close series and we want the favorite to win to, to see a game six or game seven. And, uh, and, and you know, as, as we mentioned earlier, I don't think in Argentina they were pulling for Saudi Arabia. And I don't think in Germany they celebrated Japan's comeback. I, when you have a vested interest, it, it's different, right? And, and as much as we also like to talk a big game about the underdog, whether it's in sports or the mom and pop shop around the corner, we often do a lot of our shopping at the big corporate favorites, not the underdogs. And we often, I mean, what shirts do you see when you walk around and look to see, around town for soccer or football jerseys? You see, you know, FC Barcelona and you see the Argentina shirts and the Germany shirts. And and so um, there there is an appeal to the underdog. But at the end of the day, we often come home and uh, find ourselves at some level affiliated with the favorites too. Yeah, it just tends to work that way. It's interesting you say that because as a transition, one of the parts of your book, too, is about the value of rivalry. You know who was really excited about Argentina's embarrassment yesterday in Qatar? The Brazilians. Yeah, Brazil, the, Brazil, right? Right. the Brazilians. They thought right. it was fantastic. Absolutely. Um, rivalry. Rivalry is important, right? Sometimes we take as much pleasure in our rivals losing as we do in our, in our own team winning. That's absolutely the case. Uh, I mean, I'm as guilty of, of that as anyone as a sports fan. Uh, we've got the World Cup going on right now. We've got the, uh, to me, as a University of Michigan graduate, the Ohio State-Michigan football game is happening this weekend. And and uh, I live in Boston where Yankees-Red Sox is always on people's mind. And yeah, the, the rivalry does something for us as fans. And also another example of there, there's evidence that, that soccer players – their work rate a little bit, a little bit higher. If you can actually measure their heart rate during games, it's a they're they're working more in rivalry games. They're committing more fouls in rivalry games. They get amped up as well. So rivalry does certainly get the blood flowing. Yeah, you said that even in in fans, you can they, that people derive pleasure out of watching their rivals fail. Which That's is, right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, those you know the the the, the t shirts that say things like 
you know, my, my, my two favorite teams are and pick your sport, Duke basketball and anyone who's playing North Carolina, you know, yeah, and, exactly. and, and that mentality is, is very much, you see that people do derive pleasure from um, the, the downfall of, of a rival. And it, uh, it maybe isn't the prettiest picture to paint of human nature, but that, that is who we are as people. We, we, we do celebrate our, our rivals demise. Absolutely. So when it comes to the underdog stuff and even the rivalry thing, because we're going to see some of that at the World Cup, too, one one looks one always thinks of, okay, you're Argentina. You've just been embarrassed. Germany. I mean, Japan's a good team, but, you know, Germany, too, with all the pressure on them, as far as the psychology of it is concerned, athletes, though, react. And you've pointed this out as well in previous interviews. Athletes are both we see them as superhumanly resilient when they're not really, but they are resilient. They can't yeah. come back from an from from a, an embarrassment like that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And there's different ways to do it. Some of it is just confidence in in talent level rising to the top. I and mean, if you watch that Argentina game, what did they have? Three goals, you know, overturned on offsides penalties. Right. They were offsides, but uh, it's not as if they were dominated. I mean, they were they were there and and they had their opportunities. And at some level, I think you just tell yourself, if we keep doing what we do, then you know the cream rises to the top and we'll be okay. I mean, G- Germany's got a bit of a tougher road ahead because Japan looked pretty good and they've got some a, a tough matchup. So, but I I do think that that elite performers on the sports fields and hockey rinks and 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 arenas more generally um sometimes do have that ability to to be confident in their skill set and think that they're going to bounce back i mean they're sort of out of slack for for bad breaks and bad bounces now though right i mean these are teams that can't afford to have a bad call or a, a lapsed defensive coverage i mean at this point you've you've used up any of your margin for error if you're argentina or, or germany in these games which can be a good thing or a bad thing i think the last time argentina lost their opener to cameroon in 1990 they went on to the final they didn't win right. but they went all the way to the final but you did point out and this is interesting because i thought this was an interesting part of your of where psychology you know where sports meets the rest of us is that we often look at, at athletes as somehow being superhuman when it comes to being able to compartmentalize and focus on the game at hand but we all do it to some extent don't we yeah it is a, a essential aspect of reasonably well-adjusted functioning in a world that's often threatening and full of setback, right? I mean, we have to be able to put aside that if you're a student, tough test that you got at the beginning of the semester, if, if you're uh, working in a, you know, you're an employee in a workplace, that that tough uh, performance review or whatever it is, we we do have to be resilient. Uh, we're all living in the midst of uh, manifold overlapping crises still going on across the globe, right? And we've had to compartmentalize in order to cope. Uh, and so in some respects, sure, sports are a diversion and they're not what's important in life, one can argue, but they do provide some models for some of the same type of resilience that we as human beings I think I have to demonstrate just to get by in a, again, often unpredictable and threatening world. Speaking of unpredictable and threatening, I have to ask you about the t-shirt cannon, of course, what we can learn from the t-shirt <laughs> cannon, because there's nothing more unpredictable than what happens in a crowd when that person emerges with the t-shirt cannon. Yeah. Uh, why, how did you land on that notion and why did you want to look into it? Well, it was just this question that, that you know, you hear you've got these people, grown adults, boxing each other out, like fighting for a $12 t-shirt that's like size XXXL that isn't going to fit them. It has a corporate logo they don't care about anyway. Why is it that people are, are sort of willing to, to risk life and limb to do this? And and you sort of look into it and, and recognize that it does capture some interesting aspects of of human nature. We, we, we love a competition. You know, we can turn anything into a competition, whether it's fantasy sports or whether it's 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 betting on whose planes going to come into the gate at the airport first. So we do love some competition. And and we also, we we, we love free. Right. Yes. Free, free is it's not rational. Right. But we will wait around the corner for an hour on free burrito day or free ice cream scoop day when we could go get that same burrito for what, six dollars any other day. And and six dollars for a lot of people, not necessarily worth the hour's worth of investment. But there is something really appealing about free. And and, and thus, you know, you, you see this T-shirt gun cannon, you see the slingshot throwing stuff into the crowd that you don't care about otherwise. I got to believe most of these people get home and and they've got this shirt and I don't even know what they do. They throw it in a drawer somewhere, but they've got a good story. And the story and the experience is, I think, what we're going for in many respects. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a distant second to catching a baseball at a baseball game or a puck at a hockey game, for yeah, sure. For, for sure. sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, that is your brain on sports. Sam Summers, thank you so much for your, uh, for your insight on this and uh, for explaining the underdogs. Clearly, Canada was an underdog today against Belgium. Played very well, didn't win. Sometimes it works out for the underdog. Sometimes it doesn't. 
Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Ben. Uh, yeah, the, the psychology of moral victory is another whole issue to, to, to get into, but, but great performance out of Canada today. Um, cars, vehicles are still in very short supply out there. You know, supply chains were badly impacted in those early days of COVID. Cars were impossible to find. And that business hasn't really caught up to speed just yet. It's still really hard to find a vehicle. One stat I heard was that um, for every 30 cars, there are 100 prospective buyers out there who um, who need one. So with not nearly enough supply to meet demand, you know where this goes, right? It also means long waits for vehicles if you order one, limited stock on lots everywhere. And some customers, not all, some customers are finding out that puts them in a tough spot when less than scrupulous dealerships take full advantage of the situation to layer on extra costs, everything from a so-called market adjustment fee, which means, in other words, we can charge you more, so we will. Um, that's my definition of that. There, we'll, we'll get to a more uh, fulsome one in a minute. Um, unneeded and un- unwanted add-ons, even refusing to take, insisting on financing as well, uh, because it ultimately brings in more money. All of it, again, to squeeze more money out of customers, knowing that the vehicle will sell one way or another to someone because there's so much demand out there. So how common is it? Question number one, what are some of the things that people are seeing and how can you protect yourself if you happen to be in the market or think you will be to buy a new vehicle sometime soon? To help us out with all of that is Shari Primack. He's a senior consultant at Car Help Canada, an organization that helps consumers navigate buying a car. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. So we read a lot about uh, the old issue of supply and demand. Clearly, at the height of the pandemic, supplies were uh, starting to drain. I guess it hasn't really improved much when it comes to trying to find a car these days. No, certainly not. We're continuing to experience this very severe ongoing car shortage uh, across the industry. It's, very, it's widespread. It's happening more or less everywhere. And we don't anticipate there being any change in supply anytime soon. We could see this shortage continuing well into 2023, possibly even into 2024. That's remarkable considering how much demand there is for vehicles. Is it the same reasons that we were seeing earlier about chips and so forth? Computer chips, supply chain issues, it's ongoing. It's a very complicated process the logistics of it. But yeah, that's exactly what it is. And manufacturing is tremendously slow across most car makers. So dealerships are taking in far fewer cars per month uh, than they normally would. And because the demand is far surpassing the supply, we're seeing all kinds of new practices happening at dealerships. And dealers do have the opportunity now to make far more money than they otherwise would. Uh, Negotiating is far harder to do than it was in the past. And we're starting to see the results of that with more and more consumer complaints. Yeah, supply and demand, right? I think at one point in an interview, you pointed out that there are, uh, you know, there are 100 buyers for every 30 cars out there. Yeah, that's a pretty accurate uh, example. I I share that one often. And uh, unfortunately, a lot of consumers don't understand it. Uh, They expect to go to a dealership and, you know, be able to negotiate or get a fair price. And many times they're often surprised by what they encounter. So what are they encountering these days? I imagine when you have 100 people lining up for 30 cars, it's a seller's market, right? Regardless of what you're selling. Big time. More often than not, if you go to a dealership and want to purchase a new car, you do have to order the car and wait a long period of time. Sometimes it's a few months. Sometimes it's several months, even past a year, depending on the model. Uh, So there is a waiting period and you do have to be patient and have that flexibility. If you want to buy something that's readily available at the dealership, if they have anything, chances are the dealership is going to be charging an enormous premium for that vehicle. Either they're going to add fees or a markup, or they're going to add all kinds of high profit add-ons to the price and inflate the price sometimes by several thousands of dollars. And that's the premium that many consumers have to pay to get something right away. It's unfortunate, but it's something that dealerships are able to do in this market. So what are some of the specifics of what you're hearing? I've been reading about something called a market adjustment fee, which sounds very Orwellian, but there it is, the market (laughs) adjustment fee. Yeah, well, it's essentially just a profit markup on the regular retail price. So sometimes it can be a few thousand dollars, sometimes several thousand dollars over the regular uh, retail price. And that's just one example 
of a markup you can find at dealerships. Many dealerships will charge all kinds of other types of fees that are often made up. You don't see them across the board. Sometimes they force you to buy expensive add-ons like uh, protection plans or undercoating or extended warranty plans. And a lot of these things, you know, that used to be negotiable, they used to be the the consumer's choice whether to purchase them. Now they're no longer a choice. The dealer tells you, you have to pay for these things. They're part of the price. Yeah, one of the other ones, uh, and I guess the market adjustment fee means you could have, in all good faith, uh, agreed upon a price, put down a down payment. And when you come back, the car is an extra five, six grand. Yeah, sometimes the dealership might be transparent with you and share the all-in price up front. It could be thousands over what you were expecting to pay, but at least they're they're sharing it with you uh, beforehand, before you order or sign anything. But sometimes they do leave it to the last moment. Now, that's the really tragic part. You expect to pay a certain price. You wait several months for your car. And then just before taking delivery, the dealer will tell you, hey, the price has gone up or we're going to have to charge you more for this or that. And then the consumer is in a really tough spot because they waited for so long. And what's the alternative? They take their deposit back and now they have to start the process all over again, ordering somewhere else, which sometimes they don't want to do. They just want their car. So their arm is twisted into paying more and it's not right. Yeah, no, and and I imagine, and especially these days with with the price of everything up and inflation, people don't have money to throw around, right? So that can be a real shock to the system. Tell me a bit about forced financing. That's another one too, where I guess it's all part of the same, the same sort of basket of tricks, right? Yeah, it's some it's something we're seeing more often with some dealers now, where they don't give you the choice to buy a car in cash, or if they tell you that initially, later on when you take delivery of the car, they force you to finance. The reason being is that. Oftentimes, dealers do make more money on financing. Either they can increase the interest rate, mark it up to make some more money that way, or they get a kickback from the lender, whatever it may be. Typically, financing results in more money for the dealership more often than not. So they do try to push a lot of consumers in that direction and sometimes force the the consumer to finance and not give them the choice to pay in cash at all. What can consumers do? You were mentioning that you can walk away if you don't want to I suppose you can walk away with your deposit, but then you're stuck without a car right? and then maybe another year's wait uh, for a new one under current supply chain conditions. Yeah, well, it does require that the consumer be very patient and do a lot of homework beforehand. You do need to shop around. You can't assume that the dealership closest to your location is going to give you a fair price. You have to be willing to approach at least a handful of different dealers and see what kind of price they're giving you. It might be a dealership far away that's going to give you the fair deal. Uh, And what you want to look for is whether the dealership is giving you a price that more or less matches the price on the car manufacturer website. The pricing on the manufacturer website is the price that includes the mandatory fees and really nothing extra. So if you see dealerships in the quotes are charging additional fees or add-ons that you don't see online on the manufacturer website, you know there might be a better deal out there somewhere else. So you do need to shop for multiple quotes, get all of the promises, anything that the dealership offers you in writing on the contract. Verbal promises don't mean anything. Everything needs to be in writing, including the delivery time, how long it's going to take to get the car, the final price out the door, uh, whether you can pay for cash or whether you're going to finance the interest rate, all these things you want to have in writing on the contract so that that way you can at least hold them to it. And finally, if you do experience a problem with the dealership, if they're breaking the contract or you think they're overcharging you on something, you can go to uh, your provincial regulator for support. In British Columbia, there's BSA. In Ontario, there's OMVIC. It's worth it to to contact these uh, regulators and report dealerships that you think might be breaking the law or doing something that they're not supposed to do. Yeah, because I think as um, as was pointed out elsewhere, um, there a lot of this is perfectly above board. It's it's shady, but there's nothing uh, quintessentially wrong about you know a market adjustment fee is I gather not against the rules at least the way the ways the rules are written as far as I understand. Well, in many provinces, dealerships are required to advertise an all-in price. So if a vehicle is posted for sale with a specific price, the dealer is required to honor that price. They're not allowed to charge you additional fees or add-ons or markups beyond what they advertise. So that is the law in many provinces. However, if the dealership doesn't have a price advertised, then they are free to charge 
more or less whatever they want. However, there are things that regulators can do to intervene, like this business of tied selling, forcing you to pay for add-ons and extras. That's not allowed under the Competition Act. That's something the Competition Bureau could certainly look into. So I am encouraging regulators to look into this more and take more action and not be afraid to use their enforcement to, um, to go after dealers when they find them doing some of these things. You've also suggested, I think, that uh, that those same organizations remind dealerships of their ethical obligations, that, you know, the tables may be turned one day. Uh, you know, there may be more supply than demand at one point, and people have long memories when it comes to these kinds of things. Absolutely. And dealerships should be reminded of that as well. A lot of these practices that we're seeing are very short-sighted. They're looking to make a quick buck or take advantage of the situation. But how many of those consumers are going to return back to those dealerships when they need to buy a car down the road. So I do see a lot of very honest, professional dealerships out there. I work with many of them myself, and they are looking long-term. They want to keep these customers for the long haul, and they know if they treat them well now, they're probably going to return down the road. So uh, I, I remind a lot of dealerships to think that way. I know the Americans, I mean, this clearly isn't a Canada-only problem. The Americans have been looking at some different ways of trying to enforce these rules uh, in a slightly more robust way. Yes. Yeah, so the FTC in the United States has certainly been looking into these practices because it's very widespread across the U.S., if not even more so there than in Canada. So it's great to see regulators there stepping up and doing something. Uh, I wish we would see the same in Canada. Unfortunately, because a lot of dealerships are regulated provincially, every province has their own rules, their own regulations and their own delegate authority that that overlooks these things. However, like I said earlier, I am encouraging at the federal level, the Competition Bureau to look into these matters and perhaps adopt some of the practices that the FTC is taking in the United States, because we could certainly use that in Canada as well. So advice, uh, in a nutshell, advice to those who may be in the market for a new car or a, car, a vehicle period these days, what would you tell them? Shop around, obtain quotes from multiple dealerships to see which one's going to offer you the best price in your area. Order your car well in advance. Don't be afraid to wait and don't buy something readily available because chances are it's going to be severely marked up and you are going to overpay. And of course, I, I imagine walk away, right? If you really feel like you're not being treated well, it's better to walk away than to drop the money, I would suspect, unless you desperately need the vehicle. Absolutely. Don't be afraid to walk away and don't sign the contract until you're 100% certain you're ready to buy that car. Sherry Primack, timely advice. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much. Well, today was another brutal day in Ukraine. There was another barrage of Russian missiles raining down on the country, attacking its civilian infrastructure, uh, essentially knocking out power and water systems, heating right across the country. Um, really trying to turn winter into a weapon in this war. The entire Kyiv region, home to 5 million people, had only sporadic power and running water as night fell today, uh, Wednesday. Snow's already fallen there as well. Uh, spokesman for Ukraine's Foreign Affairs Ministry spoke to the Canadian press today. He was in a small concrete bunker underground. Oleg Nikolenko says 10 million Ukrainians didn't have power earlier today. So the winter uh, time will be uh, very difficult uh, to Ukrainians because uh, of the uh, Russia's uh, missile terror. However, we are um, consolidating the support from Ukraine's partners to help us pass the winter period. Talks are underway about help from Canada, but uh, our country doesn't really have the industrial capacity to provide Ukraine with some of that really needed heavy equipment, such as transformers. We'll see what we can do. Um, the attacks on civilians and civilian infrastructure continues as Russia continues to suffer losses on the battlefield. You remember that they pulled out of the key city of Kherson in the south earlier this month. Here is how U.S. Ambassador to the U.N. Linda Thomas-Greenfield explained Russia's tactics today. It seems that Putin is determined to reduce Ukraine's energy facilities to rubble. Putin's motive could not be more clear and more cold-blooded. He is clearly, clearly weaponizing winter to inflict immense suffering on the Ukrainian people. He has decided that if he can't seize Ukraine by force, he will try to freeze the country into submission. 
Now, last night we spoke with Nobel Peace Prize laureate Alexandra Matvichuk, who's a human rights lawyer in Kiev. In fact, while we were speaking to her, the lights were out and the heat was off. She's been living through that like everyone else for, for weeks now. Um, and again, she reiterated that this is a Russian tactic to try to punish and demoralize the Ukrainian population. They tried to suppress the resistance and to occupy the country by the tool which I call the immense pain of civilian population. That's why they provided a lot of suffering to Ukrainian civilians. And now we reach the point when Russians are publicly discussed on their TV how better to destroy critical civil infrastructure and to make millions of Ukrainians afraid during the winter. Each hit on civil object is a war crimes. Alexandra Matvichuk on the show last night. Again, you can find all our interviews, including with Alexandra last night on the A Little More Conversation podcast, wherever you get your favorite podcasts. I highly recommend that interview. She, again, is a Nobel Prize laureate for 2022. She shared in that prize, her organization did. Uh, and she's been fighting this fight for a very long time in Ukraine on the front lines, including now in that uh, dark room when we spoke um, via Zoom. The lights were out. You couldn't see her. So is there anything more, like, we understand now that this is Russia's game. There's nothing, there's no low that is too low, right? So you essentially try to freeze out a population in the middle of winter. Anyone who knows anything about a Canadian winter can understand what a Ukrainian winter is like. They're very similar. Um, so this is Russia's tactic now. Can't win on the battlefield. Let's let's make the entire civilian population of this country, who, by the way, have never done anything wrong other than want freedom. Um, let's make them all suffer. So are we doing enough to hold Vladimir Putin to account? The sanctions, of course, we knew were going to take a long time to, to have an impact. We have seen some. Uh, the Russian economy is contracting, we know. Um, they are having trouble rearming. Uh, the sanctions are biting, but perhaps not the way we would expect it to. These take a long time. Plus, they're still selling a ton of energy to the West because they haven't managed to wean themselves off it just yet. Uh, somewhat. So is there a way that countries such as Canada can be doing more to tighten the vice on Vladimir Putin a little bit? Well, my next guess, without a word of a lie, has to be one of Vladimir Putin's least favorite people and has been for a very long time. Bill Browder is the head of something called the Global Magnitsky Justice Campaign, named after a lawyer of his who was killed by Putin's regime. He's one of the world's leading campaigners against corruption, specifically Russian corruption, and there's a whole lot of that. And the CEO of Hermitage Capital Management, the author of the bestsellers Red Notice and the current one, Freezing Order, Order joins me now from London. Thanks so much for your time. Great to be here. Um, nine months since the invasion, we've talked so much about sanctions and the impact that they're having or not having within the country. What's your sense of, of what's happening inside Russia? We saw the latest uh, statistics showing a 3-4% contraction in the economy. Those are the official numbers, at least. I, I think Russia is flailing. Russia is suffering um, in every different way. I mean, just think about it. So ever since they imposed this conscription, every male between the ages of 18 and 60 has thought, you know, they could die on the front in Putin's uh, ill-advised war. And so no, nobody knows the exact number, but I would guess that some, the number is probably close to a million highly productive males have left the country that were doing jobs inside of Russia that are no, no longer. On top of that, you've got 300,000 people drafted to become cannon fodder. And, and that's just the, the sort of what we know about. There are also people who have, who have slowly left the country. On top of that, you've got a thousand Western companies that have all given up their business in Russia. You've got sanctions biting on the oligarchs. You've got sanctions biting on all the companies in terms of not providing technology so they can't make, you know, they can't put airbags in cars, that planes are not airworthy because they don't have U.S. avionics. It, it's, a, it's a mess. And, and to say that it's on 3 to 4% contraction of GDP, I think is a complete nonsense. Yeah, just the official numbers. And it seems like the, the sort of the, the backup plans, the trades, the trade with India, the trade specifically with China hasn't happened either in a way that might, one might expect. You know, it's really interesting that they, everybody was saying, oh, China is going to fill in the, the blanks, fill in the gaps. You know, when, when MasterCard and Visa pulled out, they thought Alipay will come in. But, you know, Ali, Alipay doesn't want to be subject to U.S. sanctions any more than MasterCard and Visa. They didn't show up. And Everybody said that Chinese mobile phone companies will, will fill in where the uh, where Apple is no longer providing, but that didn't happen either. 
And so the only thing the Chinese are doing that's helpful to the Russians is buying their oil at a huge discount, by the way, at like a 30 or 40% discount. And so China hasn't been this big brother, friend, ally, you know, sort of locking arms with Russia. China has been an opportunist taking advantage, but it's it hasn't helped Russia, I don't think. And yet the economy too, I mean, you, you're, you're so familiar with that world of the oligarch. Uh, it feels like the economy is becoming even more corrupt and centralized than it was before, which I, I, is hard to imagine. You know, there used to be this thing in the economy where companies in Russia would want to be kind of westernized so they could get access to Western capital, that they could have Western investors, Western customers. Now that doesn't happen anymore. And so they've gone sort of full, fully full broke criminal. And, and, and you can see all little little hints of this You know, all these people that supposedly committed suicide, all these people from Gazprom and so on. They didn't commit suicide. They, they were they were murdered. And why were they murdered? They were they were murdered because people are fighting over money. And uh, that's just that, that's just like the tip of an iceberg. And, and deep down, it's just a free for all as everybody is trying to get used to this much smaller economic pie and all fighting over the scraps. Yeah. And it's a and it could be a deadly fight. I mean, this is like fighting over turf. Right. And just because it's Gazprom and it's, you know, a, a former World Cup sponsor doesn't mean that it's not uh, the fight over it isn't going to be as nasty as what we would see over a turf war somewhere else. Well, the fight's even nastier because the money involved is much bigger. This is huge money. And, and, and the oil and gas business is the only money left in Russia. And, and so they're, they're all at each other's throats, literally. Yeah, I was going to ask you about, I was meant to ask you about what you thought of those many uh, sudden deaths of CEOs in Russia. I'm glad you brought it up. Um, the sanctions themselves, though, I mean, you've obviously for a long time championed uh, going after Russians, Russia's richest where it hurts the most. How successful has that been gl globally so far in the grand scheme of things? Well, sanctions have two pers possible purposes. The first is deterrence, so to, to stop somebody from doing something. And the second, if you haven't stopped them, is punishment. And the sanctions never worked as a deterrent for Putin because we never used them before this. Right. Uh, you know, after Russia invaded Georgia, there were no sanctions. After Russia took Crimea, no sanctions. After Russia carpet bombed Syria, no sanctions. And 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 about a thousand other things. Everybody was just sort of tiptoeing around Putin. And so he 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 was of the opinion that we weren't going to do anything nasty or terrible to him if he invaded Ukraine. And he thought that there's a great, for him, a personal upside of invading Ukraine and no downside. And so sanctions didn't work as a deterrent. And so now the question is, do they work as a punishment? And, and the answer is yes, to a certain extent, but we have to be much more comprehensive if we really want to um, sort of grind down his war machine and, and make sure that he doesn't have enough money to continue to execute this war. And we, we've done some good stuff. The West has frozen $350 billion of Russian central bank reserves, which, which by the way, was the uh, finance minister of Canada, Christian Freeland's idea. Now, that's really powerful. The West has sanctioned 40 of the top 118 oligarchs, and that's, um, that's definitely tied up a lot of money. Uh, the West has, has stopped allowing technology to be sent into Russia, so they don't have microchips and semiconductors to make bombs and other, other things like that. And as I mentioned before, the all thousand Western companies have pulled out of out of Russia. So the, the sanctions are hard hitting, probably more hard hitting than anything that's ever been done against anybody ever, anywhere. But um, the one thing is missing is that we, we still when I say we, the Western world still buys oil from Russia and gas from Russia to the tune of a billion dollars a day. And Putin still spends a billion dollars a day killing Ukrainians. And so that, that's the big sort of elephant in the room on the whole economics front. Yeah, and I mean, we see some progress there, but it's it's slow going. I mean, obviously there are political considerations in Europe um, and where you are in in the UK as well over just how much um, how expensive energy can get and how much people are going to have to sit in the dark this winter. Yeah, well, I mean, so I mean, the, the good thing is that that Putin stopped supplying gas um, to Europe, and the Europeans have figured out a way to um, buy gas from elsewhere. They they've set, set up LNG terminals. They bought gas from Norway, from Algeria, from other places. People are rerouting gas within European countries, and and you know it's hard to say. It's still early early days, but they're predicting that this will be a warmer winter than usual in Europe. And if that turns out to be the case, then uh, you know maybe that whole gas card didn't work. Putin overplayed his hand. 
Bill Browder, CEO of Hermitage Capital Management and author of the bestsellers Red Notice and Freezing Order is with us this half hour. We're talking about Vladimir Putin, Russia, sanctions, the war in Ukraine. Um, You were just in Canada. You had some really interesting stuff to say about the effectiveness of Canada's ability to make sanctions bite and how we seem to be, as a country, compared to some others, we seem to be struggling to make these work. What message were you hoping to deliver while you were here? Well, so uh, Canada is is a, it, can, the Can, Canadians are sort of of two minds about how important they are in the world. On one hand, people say, "Well, Canada is a relatively small country." On the other hand, Canada is is considered to be a, a, a really important um, sort of bellwether or, or moral leader, and so Canada can have a big impact. And so I was really happy and proud that Canada passed the Magnitsky Act in 2017, which allows the Canadian government to freeze assets and ban visas of human rights violators. But since it's been passed and, and everyone declared victory and, and Canada declared its moral leadership, very few people have been sanctioned under the Magnitsky Act. And so uh, one of the messages that I was trying to deliver in Canada is, is use the Magnitsky Act, you know, stop torturers and murderers from coming uh, from you know, coming into Canada and stop them from from spending their money in Canada. And, and there's lots of them to stop. There is the Iranians there. There are the Chinese. There are the Russians. There are the uh, Venezuelans. And I would really like to see Canada acting in line with its very good international reputation to be the moral leader that Canada has the reputation for. And so that was one of the messages I was delivering. And then the second message, and this is really important in relation to the war in Ukraine, is that um, all over the world, people are starting to get Ukraine fatigue in terms of spending money to uh, support Ukrainians. And I fear that if the West doesn't send money to the Ukrainians, that will severely hamper their ability to fight off the Russians. But there's a solution to this problem, which is that, as I mentioned earlier in our talk, that that $350 billion of of Russian central bank money has been frozen in the West, including in Canada. And that money of Russian, that, that belongs to the Russian state, could be used, repurposed, for the defense and rebuilding of Ukraine. And I think it's such an important issue because... If Ukraine gets access to that money, they will win this war. This is the single most important thing that we can do right now, other than supplying weapons to Ukraine to help them win the war. And and I'm very worried on the flip side that if we don't do that, and at the same time, the West starts to curtail the other financial flows that have been coming to the Ukrainians, they may very well lose the war. And so this is the the big crux issue, which I've been discussing in Canada and various other places around the world. And I think it's one of the most important determinants of how this conflict ends up resolving itself. What is the state of the $350 Because we spoke about it, I think, back in, I mean, this happened fairly early on, right? It happened uh, back in the spring. What has happened to that money? Does it sit in, in limbo now? It's just frozen. And, um, you know, the the... the uh, the, the way these things n- normally happen is it just sits frozen for a long, long time. The idea that, that I have and many people have, the Ukrainians have, and lots of politicians around the world have, is Russia has committed a grave crime. They've, inv- they've invaded a, a neighboring country. It's cost a trillion dollars of damage to the Ukrainians. And we have custody of the money. Let's, let's um, take that money and confiscate it. Let's seize it, not just freeze it. And, you know, the... the um, uh, bureaucrats argue, well, it's never been done before. This would violate various principles and so on and so forth. But, you know, Russia killing hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians also violates a lot of principles. And, and I don't think this is a legal issue. I think it's a political issue. Yeah. And, and, and as you put out, so much about this fight has become financial as well. At the end of the day, we talk a lot about missiles and and, and fronts and Kherson and, you know, battle battlefield advances. But it really, it, it boils down to money in, in many, so many ways. Everything always does in the end. Money is the, is the root of all evil and the source of uh, a solution to all problems. When you look at what could lie ahead for Russia, um, there is talk about a certain weakness now around Vladimir Putin that the fact the war isn't going well has been has been put him in jeopardy. Do you, do you buy that? Yeah, I mean, there's no question. I mean, the, so the, the war. I think at, at the beginning he did for a very specific reason because he wanted to be a wartime president thinking that the war would be easy. And, and he wanted everyone to rally around the flag as they have when he's launched previous invasions, which has worked very well for his popularity. But now he, he launched the war, his popularity spiked, 
And then all of a sudden, half his battlefield soldiers were killed or, or dismembered or, or uh, disabled. And, and so all of a sudden, he was either going to have to lose the territory he had invaded or he was going to have to put more people into battle. And in doing so, he then had to go and, and draft a bunch of people, you know, a bunch of men between the ages of 18 and 60. And all of a sudden, every man between the ages of 18 and 60 is sitting there thinking, I'm, gonna, I'm about to, to become cannon fodder. I don't want that. I don't want to die. Why should I die for this war, which I don't agree with? And so as all of a sudden, this popularity that, that you know, people could be, they could be supporting Putin from their armchair, but now all of a sudden they face death. That's a different, that's a different story altogether. I heard yeah. a very interesting thing from a friend of mine who is a journalist, an American journalist who was in Moscow, and he was there when I was there. And he said to me, you know, all those restaurants we used to go to, I, I've been to a few of them, and there's no men. It's only okay. women in the restaurants because the men are afraid that they're going to be press ganged into the you know to the army and sent to the front. You you spent a lot of time watching Vladimir Putin. You found certainly found a way under his skin over the years. What do you think he? What do you think his mood is like these days? I think he's sitting there in his bunker, scared to death because if if he loses this war, he loses power, and if he loses power, he dies. That's as simple as that. And so he's just this is. You know, he's doing everything for his own survival now. Bill Browder, as always, thank you. Thank you.